This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Jack Losh about the ongoing brutal conflict in the Central African Republic and the horrific war crimes that are seemingly going unchecked in the region right now. Many different countries are involved, yet still there's very little focus on the country. In the last year, since we did an episode on the CAR, there's been a hell of a lot more violence. Things have gotten a lot worse. Have to excuse me, um, I've got COVID, so I sound like this today. If you like what we're doing at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. There's been a lot of fighting um, in the CAR, Central African Republic, over the last year. There's been very little coverage, as is usual for such a region, in Africa in general as well. I think there's just not enough reporting on the conflicts there. But there's been a significant rise, right, in the conflict uh, in the CIR recently. Maybe tell us what what's going on. Why is that happening right now? Yeah, it's it's been an extraordinary year. Uh, I, th- I think I spoke to you about this time, time last year. And already by that point, some pretty extraordinary events had taken place. But we didn't really know what it was setting in store for the year ahead. At times, it's been very fast-moving, lightning developments every day. Um, At the moment, it's kind of been stagnant lows where nobody was really sure what was going on. And then there's just been this overall fog of war that has settled on the country. And one of the reasons behind that is a a terrible lack of access for journalists, for human rights investigators, for um, UN peacekeepers across the country um, due to the Russian presence in the country and trying to get a handle on exactly what has been happening in some of the more remote corners has been really difficult. So there's a lot to pack in and there's a lot to cover and it's hard really to know where to start. But I think... the best place to start the story is probably December 2020, mm. just over a year ago, when the country was on the eve of presidential elections. Um, it had been about, I suppose, five or six years since really the worst of the civil war that racked the country from about 2013 onwards and killed thousands. There had been regular outbursts of fighting. Um, but things... Things were looking relatively hopeful. I suppose with hindsight, though, there were also warning signs of what was ahead. One of them being the former president, Bozizé, who got ousted back in 2013, had come back into the country and he was challenging the incumbent president, Tuadira, for these elections in December 2020. And there were severe concerns that that was going to ratchet up tensions. Well, well, those concerns were right, because it turned out that when Bazize was banned from running in the elections, he went off into the hinterland, left the capital, and started colluding with the multitude of armed groups in the country, and became the rebel leader. And that was really confirmed for several months. But with him and these armed groups, they launched this new insurrection on the eve of these presidential presidential elections in December 2020, these armed groups united into a single entity, um, rebranding themselves as the Coalition of Patriots for Change, the CPC, and uh, launched this new uprising, attacking towns across the country, and eventually including a botched raid on the capital. And Bazize's aim was basically to collude with these armed groups and seize power. Now, these attacks went on for weeks. They completely disrupted the elections. Um, a large amount of the electorate were actually unable to vote because of the intimidation and the the vandalism against polling stations. Um, towns were captured. The, the, main, the main highway coming from Cameroon to the capital, the main supply route uh, for bringing in food and other supplies to the capital, was put in a stranglehold by these rebel groups, causing 
food prices to soar, which is not good for one of the poorest countries on the earth where people struggle to get enough food in the first place. Mm. And then in January, we, we saw another dramatic development where the rebels launched a brazen assault on the capital and we saw scenes that hadn't been seen since, well, back in 2013 when the, the former rebel coalition took the capital of gunmen uh, roaming through neighbourhoods on the outside. Now, it, it didn't result in another coup. They were pushed back by security forces. And it, it, was, it was bizarre because, you know, at the end of the day, it was just, it was just a few hundred ragtag gunmen who were trying to seize the control of a capital that was in control of Russian paramilitaries, these Wagner mercenaries, um, a much stronger armed forces than had been years earlier, and a pretty beefy UN peacekeeping contingent. So there was a thinking there that actually the offensive on the capital was less about seizing control of it, which would have been impossible with just a few hundred young, inexperienced fighters. Just more about the rebel coalition saying, yeah, we're, we're here, we're watching you. We can do this if we want. We can strike at the heart of government, maybe with the hope of increasing their leverage in future negotiations down the line, you know, flaunting their ability to strike a city if they wanted to. Um, over the coming weeks, the government did seem like they were on the back foot. One of the main problems, as I mentioned, is that this rebel alliance had seized control of the main road, the main highway connecting the capital mm. with neighbouring Cameroon to the west. Just sent food prices soaring, put the capital into a stranglehold. Uh, and all this violence served only to deepen what was already one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. So by this point, oh, I don't know the exact numbers, but something like half the population, you know, a couple of million people, were already displaced internally and out of the country. Well, this new rebellion had displaced over 200,000 um, more people. Um, aid lifelines were collapsing. Violence was increasing. We saw people fleeing over the border into Congo or into makeshift uh, camps in the country. From a humanitarian standpoint, the situation was really, really dire. And at the time, around January, I actually spoke to the head of UNHCR, the uh, refugee agency in the country. And he said that that agency faced such a serious shortfall from years and years of underfunding that they only had enough money to continue operations for two months. Um, fighting had also halted more than 60% of humanitarian aid operations in the country. We saw photos of aid trucks being stranded at the, at the Cameroonian border, unable to come in because of the security risks and, and, and the rebels just attacking anyone who came down the road. So the aid was there in some places, but it couldn't get in. So the access was screwed as well. Um, so you know, this time last year, things were looking incredibly dire for the country. Uh, they're looking dire now, but, it, but the optics are completely different. So that's where we were this time last year. Mm. And then the fight back happened. And that actually began a much, you could say, much more worrying new chapter in this crisis. So after the raid on the capital, Carr's government forces, known as the FACA, the army, and its Russian allies who had been bolstering them since, well, I think, around 2018, for about two or three years, they began this dramatic counterattack. And they began clawing back town after town, village after village, along this main highway, connecting the capital to Cameroon. And not only that, they started pushing deeper into territory that had been held by these various rebel militias for years. I mean, th this is this is a country, a nation, a state, in the loosest possible terms of that word, where three quarters there or thereabouts of the country hadn't actually been controlled by the government for years. It was controlled by these local groups. Poor uh, borders, completely porous. Guns, militants pouring in. And this all began to, began to change around late January, early February last year. 
So these photos started emerging of um, the FACA government troops in new towns. Occasionally, you'd get a little snatched image of, um, of, a, of a white soldier with a bandana in the background, one of these Russian paramilitaries, Wagner, mercenaries, right. Wagner, right, whatever you want to call them. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is the infamous Wagner group. By mid-February, these combined armed forces had taken town after town and swept along the entire high highway and had reached the Cameroonian border. Now, yeah, as, as you mentioned, these Russian troops supporting them, sometimes leading from the front, completely at odds with the official mandate of the mission, which was just to be instructors, to be trainers. Like you say, they're from the infamous Wagner group. Wagner, Wagner, I, I never really know how to pronounce it. I don't know either. There are Russian, I mean, and by the way, the reason they're called Wagner, I, I think, is because their leader, Dmitry Utkin, Utkin mm. his his core sign was was Wagner in his previous war. So that's where the name came comes from. I, I do wonder sometimes if it, if if even that that core sign came from you know Hitler's favorite um, composer, because I know that he the the leader, the guy you just mentioned, is um, kind of a lifelong uh, right wing white supremacist as well, which is another interesting detail. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I. I don't know the precise details, but yeah, I've kind of read that he's a fan of that music or he likes yeah. it because it chimes with his own right-wing anti-Semitic viewpoints. I mean, there's, yeah, there's obviously a crossover there. Anyway, th this Russian private security group is kind of now well known about, and I probably don't need to kind of talk much about it to, to your listeners, but as we all know, they've been in Eastern Ukraine, they've been in Syria, they've been in Libya, and reportedly many other countries around the world. They boast strong links to the Kremlin, and Russian military intelligence. And the thinking is, is that they, they're used by the Russian state to do its dirty work while offering Moscow plenty of deniability for any yeah. abuses that may happen to occur on the ground. And also because their presence is neither confirmed nor denied and often denied, they also kind of use to confuse strategic opponents in the process and you know, raise my hand and said, journalists as well reporting on them, muddying the waters of what exactly the hell is going on in the theatres they're deployed to. Um, now, through 2020, their numbers in car were reported to rise more than, to more than 2,000, almost twice the official tally. And of course, they were never referred to as Wagner or anything by, by the Kremlin. You know, these were Russian military trains, but, but they weren't. They're, they're, they're mercenaries and they, they they were leading the fight. So it's February 2021. Over the coming months, these pro-government combined troops began inflicting severe losses on cars, variety of rebel groups. And I mean, we don't have to get into the details, but the rebels there, it's a complete alphabet soup. You've got mm. MPC to the north. You've got UPC to the south, you've got 3R, Toiser in French, standing for Return, Reclamation and Rehabilitation up in the northwest. You've got the FPRC to the northeast. And, and those are just the biggies. And I'm not even talking about the internal factions within those groups. Um, it's a bewildering array. And each one tends to be drawn down ethnic lines, uh, sometimes more broader kind of religious lines. You've got the anti-Balaka who are like the Christians or the animists. You've got the different Muslim armed groups, but then sometimes the Muslims join up the Christians. So really, it's never been a war about religion. That's what I've been wondering now. So obviously there's a lot of fighting going on. Initially, it was allegedly kind of uh, militant Christians versus militant Muslims, blah, blah. But now, like you've just said, like it's an alphabet soup. And also from what I remember um, last time we spoke, there are like kind of what should be rival factions in a coalition together. Now there's people storming the capital. Like what what like what is the fight about now? Is it just about power and territory or what? Yeah, I mean, rebellion, you know, here perhaps a way to get power is, you know, through, through voting or political coalitions or um whatever it might be. Their re rebellion has always been the tool to get power or at least to kind of get some sort of payoff from the government. So, you know, you, you raise your militia, you threaten the town, 
and then you lay down your arms if the government pays you a whacking big amount of money or gives you a lucrative government position, which you can spin a whole lot of cash out of. Um, these rebellions have also been about controlling um, lucrative turf. You know, that might be where a gold mine is located or some, you know, a, a river where you can fish for diamonds. Or actually, one of the biggest cash cows literally are these nomadic herding routes where you have these herders bringing down their um, immense mega herds of cattle, anything from 10 to, I don't know, a thousand, down from Chad, down from Sudan, looking for fresh pasture um, at the uh, at the start of each dry season, down through Car to the kind of more lush green areas towards DRC, towards Congo in the south. Actually, if you control those routes, and you can tax a few dollars per head of cattle coming through. That's a huge amount of money. So yeah, re- yeah rebellion was ever thus about money and about power in car in in simple terms. What it isn't about is religion. Maybe at a stretch, religion was used as a rallying call. Right. But even then, kind of your your ethnic allegiance was always going to be a much more determining factor in what group. Um, you, you, you were going to join. Anyway, going going back to the developments of the crisis last year, you know the Russians pro-government forces started making huge gains, but this opened a dark new chapter in the crisis. And since then, people like me have been following this, have been bombarded with daily reports of abuses, violations, and atrocities committed allegedly, but the evidence is overwhelming by Russian forces. Mm. So they're punishing counterattackers come at a steep cost. They're devastating communities. They're exacerbating grievances. They're causing a spate of human rights abuses. And in the eyes of many observers who are following this, this is all paving the way for greater conflict to come. It isn't solving it because none of the underlying anger, injustices and grievances that with a flashpoint to the conflict all those years ago, they're, they're not being addressed and it doesn't have a military solution. It might do in the short term, but you know, it's the economics, it's the development, it's the social inclusion that needs to be addressed. And simply bombing communities to hell and torturing anyone you suspect to be a rebel doesn't address those. Right, right. Um, and I've been reading that a lot of this is affecting like farmers, people like that. It's not even just militia on militia, right? It's affecting everybody. Yeah, it's 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 affecting everybody. And I suppose the people at the sharp end are the are civilians from ethnic groups who traditionally have been marginalised in car society. Uh, and what would be you know the snippets that we can catch from this black hole, really, where there's very little access of any to journalists and investigators, is that there's now this dirty war unfolding in the country's impoverished hinterland. You know, you can fly into Bangui without any problem, but what you can't really do now, well, that is changing, but during the early months of the war last year, you couldn't hop into one of the humanitarian planes and fly out to one of these towns or villages to see what was going on. But this is mostly hidden from view as journalists have for a long time been banned from leaving the capital. And if you do manage to get somewhere and write about it, the chances are, because the government is getting more authoritarian and the Russians don't want this to be revealed, that your accreditation is going to be revoked and you'll be persona non grata. So what you're now guessing is civilians trapped on contested ground with pro-government forces on the one side and an unruly array of rebels on the other and civilians trapped between these marauding forces subjected to sexual violence, to torture, to disappearances and to summary execution. And if you're suspected of collaborating with one side over the other, then you can expect to be pulled into some kind of black site somewhere or taken off into the bush and shot or tortured. Mm. So it's leaving civilians in an extremely perilous position when 
when the situation was already so dire for them because of the humanitarian crisis. Um, I, I want to talk you through kind of what these 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 violations were were happening as the Russians pushed deeper in, and I think one of the most I don't know. I mean, there's it's it's hard to say which is the most hard hitting. They're all grim. But mm. I was speaking to my contacts about six months ago, and there'd been whisperings of this, and I managed to get it stood up by two very well placed sources, including someone at the UN who'd been looking into it. And uh, there's this town called Banbury in the centre of the country that had been controlled by um, the UPC, one of the most powerful armed groups in the country uh, for Yonks. They'd been kicked out into the bush and it was now in control of the FACA, the army, and these Russian mercenaries. Basically, a deep hole had been dug into the bare earth of a military base there. I was told that it measured roughly 20 feet deep by 12 foot wide. These Russian mercenaries and federal troops had been using this pit as a black site to detain anyone they suspected of harbouring rebel sympathies. Now, what this meant is that men and women just being pulled off the street, thrown into this hole, food and water were seldom being provided. Men and women were being held together, exposed to the elements, whether that's the blistering heat, torrential rain. Just in a hole, like literally just a hole. Literally a hole dug into the ground. Uh, With no access to toilets. So you can imagine how grim yeah this was and, this, and this, was, this was during the rainy season as well so you can just imagine how abysmal these conditions were for these people now release was only being granted when a relative paid hundreds of dollars for their release they were you know they were being extorted hundreds of dollars is a huge sum in what is one of the poorest countries in the world one of the sources i spoke to a direct knowledge of this whole said yeah even if you're innocent you have to pay um, the, the, the problem is in a town like Banbury and this is the same with towns across the country is that everybody came into contact with the rebels because they ran the town they were everywhere maybe your cousin was in there maybe they lived in the house next door you know they were running racketeer I mean it's important to remember as well we're kind of focused on the Russians here the rebels have been total bastards. I mean, these these guys are war criminals who have subjected yeah. civilians to years and years of the most depraved violence you can imagine. It's not just the Russians, it's not just the armed forces. I mean, every every bloody armed group in this country, whether government or not, um, are the pits, in my opinion. So anyway, if you lived in a town like that, you were coming into contact with these rebels all the time. So... Everybody came into contact with them. Therefore, everybody in the eyes of the Russians was a suspect, meaning that anybody could be thrown into this hole, obviously without any repercussions or accountability for the soldiers throwing them into it. Now, obviously, I put I put this to the Russian authorities and they denied it. But the evidence was there that it not only existed there, but this, this same tactic was... The similar holes existed in other towns. Um, now, the, 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 this hole is interesting because it actually points to a much wider problem that's been happening across Car over the last year. Before the rebellion broke out in December 2020, there were small but promising signs that Car could actually be moving on, that it could be putting its trouble past behind it. There was an array of UN agencies, humanitarian groups, both foreign and local, Mm. um, Central African civil society groups, even some government ministries, uh, foreign aid donors. All of them were seeking to reconstruct the country from the ashes of that catastrophic civil war that broke out in 2013. It was not perfect by all means. The efforts were being focused on the four pillars upon which countries emerging from conflict can be reconstructed. Number one is security. So you had UN peacekeepers, which, you know, they, they have had their fair share 
of of scandals, sexual abuse, but there's yeah. also been plenty of examples where they have been protecting the civilian population. Yes. Also, the the armed forces has been getting built up by by the Russians on the one hand, but also by the EU. I'd say you need any help you can get at that stage, Russian or otherwise, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, security is key. You speak to civilians again and again and again. You know, what mm. do they need? I want to feel safe in safe. my house. I want to know that when I go to the fields, I'm not going to get raped. I need to know that when I'm going to go to the market, I'm not going to get robbed or shot or yeah. extorted. You know, security is the initial pillar upon which everything else is built. That is the foundation. Next comes justice and reconciliation. You, mm -hmm. know, you need good, accountable law enforcement. You need abuses to be prosecuted fairly. Uh, you need offenders to be punished, but you, you need them to be punished humanely as well. Next, social, economic development. You know, and that's the way that you start diminishing the lure that armed groups have towards you know, poor crid kids growing up out in the boondocks. You know, actually, if they had jobs prospects you know why why would you join an armed group and finally the fourth is kind of more general it's governance and participation so re creating representative political institutions creating an effective public center uh, sector accountability um a good civil service yeah, so these things were being worked on yeah some better than others but then you have the russians come in and through their actions, whether it's this hole in Banbury or grabbing a bunch of Fulani civilians up in the northwest and putting a gun to their head and summary executions or you know, raping some women that you find when you just walk into a village because a UN investigator is never going to go there and hold you accountable. Mm. As soon as you start doing that, you start degrading these pillars of peace. And what we've seen in the capital as well is that the government is becoming increasingly authoritarian. They're stifling dissent. And they're backsliding towards, they're not there yet, but towards the worst excesses of the country's past predatory rulers, like Bozizé. Now, I think it is fair to say that the Tuadera administration is not on the same level of authoritarianism as Bozizé was, but the risk of it reaching that, I think, is fairly high. Yeah, so it sounds very bleak. Um, is there is there anything positive being done to kind of try and curtail this? What about the military? Like they don't seem to be very equipped to deal with this. By the sounds of it, what's what's being done to try and you know sort this out? Yeah, I mean, what comes next in car is kind of the big question, and the events of the last year or two have shown it's it's very hard to predict. I mean, there there are several things that have occurred over the last few weeks which we can kind of maybe offer some pointers. Um, I I kind of feel overall is that even though Kazan groups seem fairly degraded, what we're slipping into now is a pretty nasty, dirty war of attrition that shows no sign of stopping. And as it rumbles on, civilians from ethnic groups and society's margins that the russians and the government link to the armed groups they're the ones who are going to continue to be persecuted i mean in terms of getting rid of the armed groups which is pretty key for the country's future one of the interesting developments has been with upc um which has dominated uh, much of the south southeast for years, um, I've got loads of mines. They've always been incredibly well armed, pretty good uniforms. They're one of the ones that you tend not to mess with. Well, over the last few weeks, they've been hit with waves and waves of defections. A week or two ago, it was an influential commander, but up until that point, around reportedly 200 militants have quit the group. Now, where that goes from here, Who's to say? But of course, that's only one group out of a whole um, multitude. Uh, one element that of, of the reconstruction stabilization process that's always been held as key for Carr's future is justice, ending impunity. Because what we've always seen, these warlords raise rebellions, and then instead of, you know, 
going to the Hague to be tried at the ICC or being tried by by the country's national justice system is that they just kind of get paid off, they get a government position, and okay, fighting dies down, but there's no accountability for their actions. And if there's no accountability and if there's no justice, then that's just providing an incentive for it to happen again. So on the justice side, there have been some promising signs and there have been some very depressing signs. Let's start with the depressing side. In November, a former senior UPC member, a guy called Hassan Buba, he was arrested in Bangui. Now, by that point, Carl's politics is confusing. He was a representative of UPC, which supposedly the government is at war with, but he was also serving as the government's minister of livestock. So it's one of these classic cases of bringing in these rebels to try and placate the movement, open up those lines of dialogue, but it's pretty murky and it seems pretty corrupt. Anyway, he was accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity and he was arrested and he was going to get tried at this new institution, this UN-backed war crimes tribunal, special criminal court, holds great promise, He's also had a lot of obstacles. He was arrested. Great. Wow. Is this the dawn of a new era of accountability and end of impunity in car? Well, a few days later, he was released right, <laughs> by the country's security forces. And everybody was just aghast at this. And I mean, it was pretty murky. It was pretty unclear. But basically, his release was seen as a politically motivated intervention. And if you have the right contacts in the government, in the presidency, then, you know, justice doesn't apply to you. Accountability doesn't apply to you. So that was a bit of a bummer. Mm. But also, it, has, it hasn't been all bad. I mean, we're talking about the special criminal court. This is actually an interesting institution. You know, we've seen plenty of war crimes tribunals across the world for decades. I mean, going right back to the Nuremberg trials, right? But in more recent times, we've got um, uh, the the special court that was set up after the Bosnian War, uh, one to try the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, uh, one for the assassination of the Prime Minister in Lebanon, uh, there's one tip for Kosovo, uh, one tip for oh, West African State, I've gone blank. But look, there's, there's nothing new about un bat war crimes tribunals, but this one in Carr actually um, was bucking the trend and was actually quite a groundbreaking new one because all the courts before were either set up in the countries where the war had taken place but had ended or they were set up to try war criminals from conflicts that were ongoing but in a country outside of that war mm. this was the first one to be set up inside a country where that war is still going on with the hope of bringing some accountability you know dissuading people from fighting and actually hopefully dampening down um, the ongoing conflict um, in the process. So when was it? Uh, I think it was last month, uh, the first public hearing happened in the Special Criminal Court where survivors of this awful massacre that happened up in the Northwest near Power in May 2019 um, had their hearing. they were going to hear whether or not they were going to be put on trial. Um, and it's, it's now been decided that they are going to be put on trial. Great news, promising. So, you know, we're going to see where that's going to go and if that will have the dampening effect on the conflict um, that is so hopeful. Also, last month, um, the ICC, obviously an institution not without its controversies in Africa, given the amount of Africans who have appeared in it and not yeah. many other people from other parts of the world. But that, that aside, um, a chap called Mohammed Saeed Abdul Kani, who um, prosecutors allege is, you know, was one of the senior figures in the Seleka Rebel Alliance who took power in 2013 caused untold suffering among the civilians he appeared in the dock at the icc um and they were again establishing if there was enough evidence for him to go on trial and the judges the magistrates decided that there was um and it's now paving the way for the first major selica trial 
And this is in addition to the trial of anti-Balaka fighters. I know these names are confusing. Anti-Balaka were the militant, let's say, Christian. Selika were the quote-unquote Muslim rebels who were fighting together. Actually, instead of saying Christians, the anti-Balaka were really the loyalists to the president who had been deposed. And the Selika were the rebels from the majority Muslim north who came down and kicked them out. So both sides from that conflict now have representatives who are on trial uh, in major international trials in The Hague, which is promising, right? I mean, this, <laughs> the overall picture in car is bleak. The, it's the cogs of it. justice... The cogs of justice take years to move, but mm. they are beginning to move. So, you know, perhaps that will build some momentum, that will build some critical mass. Now, will personnel from Wagner be put up for trial? Is the Kremlin going to extradite them to a state where they can put up to trial? <laughs> Probably not, but time Probably will not. tell. Yeah. But, but certainly these trials are, are glimmers of light in an ongoing, very dark situation. Yeah, yeah, it's something, it's something. Um, what, what, what interest does Wagner really have there? Like, I'm really confused as to their role. I mean, I know their role is essentially like, go there and just just do the worst, you know what I mean? Damage and that. But like, they, they are quite clearly, there's a lot of investigations gone into this. They are quite clearly linked in some way to the Kremlin. What, what interest does Russia really have there other than, you know, having a paramilitary group? Yeah, right, so... Russia started getting involved in car. I think it was was it late 2017 when their foreign minister Lavrov he met with car's president Tuadera. Um, that's it. Late 2017 in the Black Sea resort town of Sochi in Russia, and after their chat, this burgeoning alliance began. Um, Russians managed to get a an exemption to the UN arms embargo on the country, which was imposed to try and stop all these guns flooding into the country and fueling the war. Russia managed to secure an exemption to that and donated a whole bunch of weapons and ammunition to Kars' weak military, as well as an accompanying force of 175 quote-unquote military instructors. That's all very good until we discovered these guys were Wagner, and then you only have to look into recent history of what you know, in fact, was done in Syria, eastern Ukraine, and the amount of abuses they're accused of, and actually it starts looking not so rosy. And, and since then, Russia's engagement with the country has ramped up, um, not only sending in hundreds more Wagner personnel, but also big um, arms donation, armed vehicles, and so on. Yeah, I mean, your question is, why is Russia doing this? Well, this, this entry into car kind of sounded the, 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 the firing shot for dramatic inroads into Africa that Moscow hadn't done really since the Cold War. And there's economic gains to be made from this. And I suppose there are gains of the more, what you would call a geostrategic nature as well. So economically, you know, one of the main constituents for Putin's rule is the um, industrial military complex, big arms manufacturers. Well, you know, car can be used as a showroom for all sorts of Russian-made guns, military vehicles, other types of firepower that are manufactured but in Russia, which is the world's second largest arms exporter after the U.S., Cars in a bad neighborhood. Yeah. You've got Chad to the north, Sudan, Congo, South Sudan, Cameroon. You got the Sahel and all its jihadist woes not too far away. Mm. Well, you know, if if cars if Russian guns can win the war in car, that's a pretty good marketing campaign for arms manufacturers in Russia. The strategic opportunity that it presents to Moscow is that it can expand its sphere of influence in a continent from which it had re retreated after the chaotic collapse of the Soviet, Soviet Union, um, all on the cheap. I mean, you've got to remember, during the years of the USSR, you know, Africa was a battleground between Western interests uh, and Soviet interests. You know, look at Angola, where you had kind of communist back forces on the one hand fighting against Western back forces. There were all sorts of KGB agents um, posted across the country. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, it didn't have the resources to sustain that. 
and Russia retreated into itself. Well, places like Kar present an opportunity where Moscow can inject itself into places that are pretty fed up with the West. You know, the French have a pretty funny relationship with the country. I mean, there's a big influence there. Everybody speaks French in the country, apart from you know, the main national language, Sango. But they are, they're also hated as the former colonial ruler. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about all the bad things that the Russians did. But, you know, the French, the, the, the French colonialists really took some tips out of the Belgians' playbook in Congo. You know, the chopping off hands, yeah. the exploitation, the King slavery. King Leopold, all mm. of that, you know. So the French have a very strained relationship with the country. You know, they, but they also have a lot of contacts that they can flip. And the, the Russians are competing against decades and decades and decades of French investment and control and contacts, uh, which is pretty hard to overturn. Though I would say that based on the last year or two, Russia's definitely winning in supplanting the French and also EU influence there more recently. As an example, um, it wasn't just the Russians training up arms, um, cars army. Uh, the EU also had a military training mission there as well. <laughs> Embarrassingly, a few weeks ago, it emerged that one of cars armed forces battalions that had been trained by the EU, trained with EU taxpayers' money was actually now under the control of Wagner and was being directed by these Russian soldiers in the heat of battle, which is very embarrassing. And actually, since then, the EU temporarily suspended their mission to the country. Um, this is a problem because if you look over to the Sahel, where France and EU have been training members of Mali's military, for example, you've now got hundreds of Wagner soldiers pouring into there as well. And obviously the concern is, is that everything that's happened in car and the supplanting of Western influence there could easily happen again there after huge amounts of investment by, um, by the EU. Uh, so yeah, car, car does present that strategic opportunity for it to expand its influence after the, what it regards as the catastrophic chaotic collapse of its Soviet um, empire. Uh, over 20 years ago sorry over 30 years ago yeah yeah um i know i know it's 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 kind of especially on this uh, on popular front it's become almost a mantra but like why is it that this is so ignored like this is catastrophic levels of war crimes various different countries all involved even conflicting countries countries that are enemies and it's just like you just don't hear anything about it i mean i have my opinions as to why that is um you know you cover this region a lot more than i do you know a lot about more about it than i do w what do you think it is i mean i think there's there's multiple reasons um and you know i must and this kind of tells you a lot i think there actually has been a heck of a lot more not a lot but there has been a lot more reporting on the crisis in car over the last year purely because of the russian angle you know, when there were thousands of Central Africans being killed during the Civil War, when local rebel groups were persecuting people and killing people and subjecting people to um, awful levels of sexual violence. Was there reporting on that that there is now? No. But as soon as there's a Russian angle, as, as soon as uh, Western influence is threatened then i mean i'm i get it understandably there has been a lot more reporting but it's depressing to see that it takes the involvement of the russian boogeyman to um drum up more attention in what has been one of the most catastrophic humanitarian crises and also one of the most woefully underfunded humanitarian crises in the world um i think over the last two years as well the dreaded C word, people have been distracted by the pandemic yeah. and have been looking inwards. I mean, I was out in Nagorno-Karabakh just over a year ago, as, as you were too. Um, and there was a sense there that, you know, was that offensive launched by Azerbaijan because the world was looking inwards, not just at the pandemic, but also 
the nonsense with Trump and the US election. Mm. Um, you know, we're pretty distracted. Um, you know, looking at it from a British perspective. Um, I think with all the woes of Brexit and I mean now parties and kind of internal political rumblings, it's depressing to see how much we do look inwards when there are terrible crises and car is not the only one obviously i mean what is happening in myanmar what is happening in the sahel i mean i'd, I'd say what's happening in, in mali and neighboring countries actually is in a far greater scale that's happening in car um does it get the attention that it deserves in um uk and european media absolutely not it's it's it's, it's depressing yeah. And uh, it's a shame to see how much we look inwards. Um, here's here's an anecdote. I don't know how much you can take away from it, uh, and it's maybe a little bit unfair of me to kind of go into this until all my data's in. But I think it actually illuminates um, this trend, and this seems as good a time as any to go into it. I, I was in Iraq um, a few weeks ago, and I'm writing up my pieces on that, and part of it is looking at declining American and European, say, Western support mm. for humanitarian efforts there, um, specifically in the area of mine clearance, right? And, you know, this, Iraq is completely littered with these, with these bombs. Um, getting data from all the main Western donors was pretty illuminating, seeing who was the most quick and transparent with their figures and the ones who weren't. And the ones who were, you know, are the ones you'd expect, the Scandinavians, um, the Dutch, were all very forthcoming with interviews with senior diplomats and sharing their figures. And I'm afraid to say the one country that has just been so crap with communication, with sharing aid figures and offering an interview to get a, a better sense of it has been the UK. Not surprised. Uh, yeah. And specifically the FCDO, uh, well, I mean, is that, what does it stand for? The Foreign Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, I presume, which, you know, controversially was a fusing of the FCO, the Foreign Office, and um, uh, DFID, Department for International Development, fused together. I mean, aid has always been politicized hasn't it but i mean the fusing of those things together makes aid so much more politicized and you know i i forget how many emails i think four or five before i even got a response and then after that it's like, oh, i'm afraid you have to put in a freedom of information request which is going to take 30 days and no no one's available to give you an interview and i just thought well I, I don't know how much can be extrapolated from that but that's a pretty sorry indication of where we stand as a post-brexit um outward-looking, globally engaged nation was, was the sense I took away from that. Yeah, I think as well, it's it's a representation as well of the inside of Britain as well. I mean, it's no, it's not an opinion. It's a fact that the, the current government is trying to make the country more authoritarian. The, the mainstream press have done a dismal job of highlighting that, but it is actually an absolute fact. You just have to look at the police crime sentence and courts bill, the total demonization of immigrants. If it's bad, then it's because of immigration, when actually a lot of the fault is from inside the government. Now, the fact that the government completely fails to properly communicate with the public, I think it then shows on the outside in a case like this is a perfect example. You know what I mean? As, as above, so below sort of thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's very easy to not the British government. It, it's too easy. Let me give you an example that is Central African Republic related that actually made me feel I'm not, I'm not a nationalist. And sometimes I struggle hard, hard to feel particularly patriotic the way the government behaves. Yeah. But there was an example in car when I felt incredibly proud to be British and it showed the best of what it means to be a globally engaged nation. I was in this town called Bria. Um, out in the east of the country, it's, it's been controlled. It had been controlled by rebels for years. Uh, I managed to get out there for a few days and they've got this massive displacement camp filled with thousands of civilians living in just the most abysmal conditions under tents, um, encircled, besieged by the rebel groups there. 
the peacekeepers actually had to build a mound of earth, a berm of earth around the camp to stop the rebels outside firing into the firing at the displaced civilians within. I mean, it re- really was kind of the grimmest, most forgotten humanitarian hotspot you can imagine. But as I was going through the town one day, there was a little hospital, the only hospital there, and there was a sign on it that said, supported by UK aid. Uh, This is a country that wasn't even a former British colony, so we don't have those historic connections to it. Uh, This was before the Russians really started muscling in at all. So there wasn't any strategic, um, uh, any strategic opportunity to be gained by the UK going in there. And it really felt that this was a place that needed help. And there was some budget in the UK aid budget that was going to go towards this hospital without really anything of benefit coming back to the UK's national interest. I thought, you know what, that is great. And that is actually, you know, without going to the ins and outs of aid dependence and all the rights and wrongs of that, it just seemed like a very positive thing under the current state where aid is just going to become increasingly even more so politicised and only used for the benefit of the national interest and and also whose national interest, I should add, that hospitals like that, I mean, I think they're going to be the first to suffer. And that's a great shame. Yeah, no, definitely, Matt, I agree. Um, All right, Joe, I've been speaking for about an hour now. Um, Is is there anything else you want to mention before we go? I mean, the, the... There is one other development in the country, which I'm afraid is not a particularly happy note to end on, but it is unprecedented. And I feel it's, it's at least worth touching on. And you can use as much or as little of it as, as you like, but it's definitely worth touching on. And it's the growing threat of landmines and IEDs in the country. Um, and the way that this points to a dangerous tactical shift in what is now an unfolding guerrilla war. Um, last September, an aid convoy was driving across the volatile northwest and it struck an explosive device. And this killed an aid worker from the Danish Refugee Council. Now, th- this took place in one of the world's most dangerous countries for aid workers, where they're regularly subjected to assault, intimidation, even murder occasionally. But this tragic incident stood out and it highlighted this growing and unprecedented threat after even during years of civil war hadn't had never been seen before now these indiscriminate devices they kill they cause horrific injuries and they're keeping aid and human rights investigators um out of the hotspots which means fighting is happening behind closed doors which means those committing abuses such as the russians such as the rebels such as the central african armed forces are even less likely to be in the dock. And when we're seeing this trend in the wider region, landmines and IEDs have become increasingly prevalent in northern Nigeria, in the Lake Chad Basin, uh, in DR Congo. And their first known use in car came in June 2020, which is actually before the latest rebellion, but it's actually when the UN peacekeepers had launched an offensive against this armed group in the northwest called uh, 3R who began using these weapons uh, to try and cling onto territory and uh, keep the offensive out. Um, This might be quite a granular detail, but it really captured my attention. So I was speaking to a weapons expert, um, David Lockheed, who works for the Small Arms Survey. And when I spoke to him, yeah, incredible organisation, do a lot of great work. Now, David... As I understand it, I mean, he's been, he's been doing this for years. He's, he's one of the most eminent experts in this field. I don't think he'd actually managed to get to car yet because n- nobody could get into the parts of the country where this was happening. But he'd been following it closely. And it seems that um, among the devices being laid was a type of what well, is a type of anti-tank mine known as a PRB-M3. I've never heard of that, but apparently it's a powerful... Um, Belgium-made explosive, not not made now by them, but it was made by them in the 70s and the 80s. David said that the thinking is is that these mines are probably being trafficked from Libyan stockpiles, which are obviously not particularly well controlled, Mm. or harvested, harvested, 
active minefields in Chad and Sudan. As in dug out from the ground? Dug out from the ground, keep your fingers crossed, put it onto the back of a truck, you know, hopefully it's degraded enough that it's not going to blow me up, but hopefully it hasn't degraded so much that I can actually, you know, flog it on the black market. Wow. And David explained that Carl's rebels, who, you know, most of them are drawn from Muslim communities, but, but are absolutely not jihadists. They, they don't have this political extremist Islamist agenda. I mean, that's always been a risk of emerging in Carl, but I mean, it's, it, it's certainly not the case. Um, but these rebels do seem to be copying the tactics of jihadist groups in Mali who get these types of mines and then incorporate them into improvised explosive devices, into IEDs, alongside other homemade explosives to create bigger blasts that can then destroy armoured vehicles, the, the type that are used by not just armed forces, but by peacekeepers. That That's a worrying concern, and it does show the asymmetrical um, nature of this guerrilla conflict because you can get an IED that might cost 20, 30 quid to build, but you can then defeat an armoured vehicle that costs upwards of half a million dollars. So th- this, is, this is a really worrying trend that has been buggering up the humanitarian response to the crisis even more, because you can't drive into a place when the road is laced with bombs. I mean, the UN has been airlifting some aid in, in the most extreme circumstances, but that's extremely expensive. And this crisis, as I've said a lot, does not have the funding from the international community. And the impact on civilians, most of all, is calamitous. So they're planted on roads, they're planted near schools. That means kids can't go to school. That means you can't go to your crops. It means entire villages are cut off from peacekeeper patrols designed to protect them from the rebels who are planting these in the first place. Um, it means that peacekeepers are banned, are obstructed from getting into places. And also they're not getting obstructed from going to places just by these mines, but really Russian personnel have been obstructing them um, too. Um, in some places, it, it, it seems that rumours have been spread by Russian personnel and by cars armed forces that landmines had been planted when in fact they hadn't, but they kind of create that rumour to try and dissuade armed groups from going in. Mm. But even that has an impact because it doesn't matter if the bomb presence is genuine uh, or it's fate because the fear created by it is real. It still limits farming activities. It still prevents children from going to school. It still prevents peacekeepers from getting in there. So this, this has been a trend that has been, it, it's still fairly early, but it's been going on now for about 18 months. And the number of um, deaths and, and, and injuries from these totally indiscriminate devices um, is increasing. And yeah, it, it does point to a shift and it shows us that we're now entering a guerrilla war and we're entering uncharted territory and where that take, takes us is unknown. But the impact on the civilian population is without doubt going to be severe. That's really brutal. And actually, you know, it's very dark, but that is really fascinating. The levels of like battlefield ingenuity when it comes to kind of guerrilla factions or militias it's just, it never ceases to like blow my mind when I hear stuff like that. Like digging out actual mines from the ground to then turn it into like an anti- anti-tank thing. Like fascinating, man, really interesting. But like you yeah, said, I mean, you very bad. Be, part of you can't help being impressed by the uh, the ingenuity and the um, the resourcefulness of yeah, someone who's doing that. It's like, it's okay, like it's bad, but it's And do you wild. know what? You, you wouldn't be doing that if, if you had good job prospects and if the government had been investing in kind of jobs and services in your part of the town. So, you know, the, <laughs> there aren't any bad guys in this uh, or certainly not on these kind of lower levels. It's just people born into very difficult situations, different situations from you and I. And when you take that into account, you know, judgment kind of goes out of the window and you can, it's just different circumstances. But, yeah. um, but the but the but the but the impact is is brutal and yeah it's it's a concern. Yeah, man, definitely. Um, Jack, where can people follow your work and um, get in contact with you if they want to? 
Yeah, well, um, I'm on Twitter tweeting about this. Sometimes I feel like a voice in the wilderness, but uh, no, it's good. It's good. I'm, 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 I'm not. There's, there's actually some very talented French freelancers on the ground as well who have actually been on the ground far more than I have mm. in recent months and years, and, and they're brilliant. But yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter uh, at Jack Losh, L-O-S-H, my surname. Um, I'm on Instagram quite a lot. I'm actually think I'm moving more towards pictures than words. I've been right written too many words over the last 10 years, Jake. I just need to do yeah, sim- simple pictures now. But yeah, I'm on Instagram um at jack.losh. And if you want to delve into my dispatches from CAR and um other places around the world, my website is jacklosh.com. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Always a pleasure, man. That was really insightful. Cheers, Jake. Thanks very much. And yeah, I hope we can speak soon. Keep up the good fight. Loving the work you guys are doing at Popular Fun. It's brilliant to see. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. That was journalist Jack Losh talking to us about the horrific and continued and seemingly unchecked war crimes going on in the Central African Republic, a country we hear almost nothing about in the day-to-day running of the media, despite there being constant um, wars there and really horrific conflict. Many countries uh, from all over the world involved, but there you go, we don't hear a lot about it, unfortunately. Definitely check out Jack Losh's work. Known him for quite a while now, good few years. He's a really good reporter, really good lad. Check him out, jacklosh.com. You will see all of his um, links to here, there, and everywhere. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popularfront. We do not accept corporate investment and we don't have advertising from any shady fuckers. So the way we make money is the Patreon. We're also completely demonetized off of YouTube. So our documentaries, um, the latest of which have, I think, 100,000 views and 2.5 million views. We made absolutely no money from them because uh, YouTube says no can't advertise on that because you know you're showing war the realities of war and youtube only allows either big corporate uh, media to advertise or ridiculous bullshit like fucking you know tutorials on how to paint your face like a clown or whatever so there you go yeah if you can support us that is really appreciated you get a lot of extra content patreon.com slash popular front to be honest more of the podcast will probably be going up on the patreon um which five dollars a month you get it all um going forward this year because we really do want to kind of step things up take things to the next level do a lot more documentaries and obviously to do that um it costs money so yeah patreon.com slash popular front or if you want to support us with cryptocurrency go to popularfront.co slash support we accept bitcoin uh, ethereum and monero i know these days it's not the correct opinion to like crypto um, but we do. We have done for a long time. Um, if you don't like that, don't really care. So definitely check us out. Um, www.popularfront.co. You'll see links to all sorts there. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop, coffee business, selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. The episode was also sponsored by Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grindcore House. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. Also check out the Popular Front section there. We have some uh, posters there that are specifically um, Popular Front stuff. You know, things we've, we've, photos we've taken in the field, stuff from our documentaries, the JSTAT poster is there, all sorts. Propagandopolis.com. If you want to follow us on social medias, um, at, e- oh, what, what the fuck, hang on, wait. Yeah, Instagram.com slash popular.front. Sorry, I'm a bit ill, I've got the fucking COVID. <clears throat> So my brain is scattered. Um, Twitter is at popularfront underscore. Um, YouTube.com slash popularfront. If you want to see any of my stuff, just at Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home. 
And the outro, as always, was by Sam Black. Check his music out at samblackpf.com. Follow him on Instagram. He makes kind of uh, video stuff with his music. It's pretty cool. Uh, at samblack.jpg. JP. Um, yeah, thank you to our high tier patreons. They are username nthg845829. If you can change your username, that'd be much easier. <laughs> but no worries if not. Uh, Tom Taylor. Ethan Zwick, Champagne Anarchist, Thwat, Elise Middlefar, Lewis, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Yudoye Travis, Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, K. Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Dodd, Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, uh, Shanklin the Painter, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Nawais, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Noah, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Donham, Fletcher, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all very much. Really do appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be growing as rapidly as it is. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Mm -hmm.